I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Part of the way we've told the story of family which is always a combination of fact and myth, right? When we talk about grandma so-and-so and and great-grandpa so-and-so, is to excise disability from that family myth. So every time somebody's diagnosed, it's like it's never happened in the history of the universe before. And what I'm trying to do is to explore why that's true, how we would change that, right? And what it would mean for destigmatizing, valuing, and understanding disability in all our families. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. I'm excited to share this conversation with Jennifer Natalia Fink and get into the nuances of her fascinating new book, All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. The premise of Jennifer's book is that disability is often described as a tragedy or crisis or an aberration, even though, as we know, more than one in five people worldwide have a disability. So Jennifer wanted to explore the question, why is this common human experience rendered exceptional? Instead, Jennifer is advocating for a reclamation of disability as a history, a culture, and an identity. She's pushing for a world where families see disability in the context of a collective sense of belonging, as a cause for celebration, and as a call for radical reimagining of care work and kinship. So we went deep into this idea of disability lineage, and Jennifer shared what's at stake if we don't know and claim our family history. We also discussed why getting a disability diagnosis can be traumatic for families and how that is accentuated by the way our society thinks about disability. Lastly, Jennifer shared her thoughts on making the care system more equitable by embracing disability as a collective experience rather than something individual families have to deal with. 
And let me quickly tell you a little bit about Jennifer. Jennifer Natalia Fink is a director of the Program in Disability Studies and a professor of English at Georgetown University. She's the author of six books and founder of The Gorilla Press, a nonprofit promoting youth literacy through bookmaking. Jennifer is the winner of the Dana Award for the novel and the Catherine Doctorow Prize for Innovative Fiction, as well as a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. But first and foremost, she is a mother. The transformative experience of parenting her autistic daughter is at the center of her work. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to getting into your book and your work. But before we do that, would you mind just giving us your own introduction to yourself? I've already read your more formal bio, but I'd love to know how you would describe who you are and what you do in the world. Oh, that's a great question. I am a mom, first and foremost, of an autistic 15-year-old. And I am the director of the Program of Disability Studies at Georgetown University, as you probably mentioned, and also an experimental novelist, so a winding, peculiar path, perhaps. And I'm also queer, and I think that's an important part of who I am and how I come to thinking about disability and parenting. And I just have to ask, what's an experimental novelist? Nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> let me know if you, you figure it out. I write novels that play with form as well as content and work from the premise that the way we tell a story has everything to do with who we are. So our identities, our histories, have, and that are, are central to how we tell the, the story. And how we tell it is as important as what the story is and kind of changes what that story is. All right. That is fascinating. I haven't heard that before, but makes sense the way you describe it. And I love that. But today I really want to talk about your new book. I was thankful to get an advanced copy of it before it came out. It's called All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. I was instantly intrigued by the title and by this idea of disability lineage. That's a phrase I had never heard before. So could you start us off by explaining what that means? Yeah. By disability lineage, what I mean is that in all of our families, there were disabled people. Some of them were institutionalized. Some of them, their disabilities were invisible, like mental disability or sometimes labeled as mental illness. So those disabilities may not have been recognized or those people may have been marginalized, institutionalized, separated, delineated from our family. So nonetheless, they were there. They might not have the exact same disabilities as ourselves and our children, but they existed. And part of the way we've told the story of family, which is always a combination of fact and myth, right? When we talk about grandma so-and-so and great-grandpa so-and-so, is to excise disability from that family myth. So every time somebody's diagnosed, it's like it's never happened in the history of the universe before. And what I'm trying to do is to explore why that's true, how we would change that, right? And what it would mean for destigmatizing, valuing, and understanding disability in all our families. Yeah, that 
conversation just feels so fresh and new to me. I think that's why the book itself really caught my eye. It's just a concept that I I had never considered it. And even as you explain it, of course, those people are in our past, but we may not have had the language for it, or, or I'd like to hear a little bit more from you why that happened. I mean, I know that writing this book was very personal for you. And you share your story in there. I'm wondering if you could even just share a little bit of your own story and how it led you to explore this through the book and in your own world. Yeah. So when I was seven, my aunt and uncle gave birth to, well, my aunt did the giving birth, right? A child with Down syndrome who was sent away at birth, separated from the family. And not referred to, kind of excised from the family story, except at strange moments. And it's important to note, I'm the daughter of a geneticist. So the genes you have or don't have are crucial, right? So I grew up knowing about this, but not knowing this cousin or what had happened to him. Fast forward 30 years, (laughs) 30 plus actually, I had a child, I have a child who was diagnosed at age two and a half with non-speaking autism, right? And I experienced that diagnosis as very traumatic, as sort of unprecedented. How do we fit into this concept and construct of family? And, you know, I went to shrinks, I read all the things, but it was almost assumed in all the literature that this is traumatic and unprecedented, right? And you sort of have to melancholically kind of get over it, but you're abnormal, you're not really fitting into this construct of family. And it made me think in some way about why it seemed so unprecedented, there is disability in my family story. But what happened to it? It was suppressed. The literal person cut off from our literal family. And the story of family was told as if there wasn't any disability. Right. So I was thinking about that. Also, as a queer person, this echoed sort of my experience, as I I call it, a 20th century queer experience, where even in a very liberal, progressive family, there was no precedent for being a queer person. My parents couldn't imagine their daughter would be a queer. It wasn't even like, don't be that. It just wasn't even imaginable, right? And I had no sense of a queer family story, a queer history. There were, of course, queer people in my family lineage. So it echoed that in some way. So I brought some of what I know as a queer person. My daughter's 15 now. Many things happened. I I became very interested in disability studies, which really challenges a lot of the frameworks through which disability is understood. And instead of seeing it as an individual medical problem to be solved, it's an identity to be celebrated. So that was all helpful. And I began doing you know, scholarship and teaching that area. I eventually became the director of disability studies. But this question of, you know, how do you imagine your family and your future and kinship when you can't imagine disability lineage? Well, you can't really is the problem. And even in disability studies stuff and disability justice stuff, I found there was a lot of reference to sort of a mythic you know, family, like on the ancestral plane, there are these people who were disabled, who came before me, who can be like my my spirit guides, but not in my own family. And many of the disability justice people would say there were no disabled people in my family ever. And that cannot be true. I began to think about how we got here and how we could do otherwise. 
ways and how it's wound around racism, sexism, homophobia, all kinds of things, the Nazification and institutionalization of disability in the post-war era, all kinds of stuff, interesting, depressing stuff, right? But also to use a lot of disability justice and critical race frameworks to think about how we could connect this idea of a chosen family and community that is such a rich idea from disability justice and critical race frameworks with our actual biological or adoptive family with the family of origin to not treat these as an either or that I don't think that serves us in how normalize, destigmatize, and integrate disability into the human framework. Wow. So you covered so much in that. I was like writing all these notes. I'm like, okay, how do I follow the thread of my brain here? First of all, just to kind of take a step back. I mean, you talked about the identification of your daughter as being autistic when she was two, and that that was really traumatic information for you. Can we talk about just that idea of why is it this trauma for so many families. And I mean, trauma is a powerful word, right? Why is it something that we really can't even compute? Maybe in our generation, maybe it won't be for the generations to come. But can you talk a little bit more about that and why that is the way we're kind of set up as a society to respond? Yeah, I mean, there's not one reason, but I want to, something I talk about in the book is sort of as long as it's healthy, you know, that phrase that we all said when we were pregnant, Right. And what is that phrase in response to? A very particular question that's about gender, right? Do you want a boy or a girl or do you know if it's a boy or a girl? As if those are the only options, first of all, right? And there's only one right answer to that question. And it's like, I don't care as long as it's healthy, right? So there's a lot invest, there's a displacement, first of all, of our anxieties around gender actually and care is what I end up exploring in the book that we're very worried about who's doing care and who's not doing care. And we're very worried about having a high needs child, basically, because if you're a white middle class woman, it's going to deprofessionalize you because of the way we've chosen as a society to arrange and distribute unevenly care. If you're a person of, if you're a woman of color, if you're working class, it can, you know, knock you into extreme poverty, right? So it's not that we're bad people to be (laughs) displacing these anxieties, but it's a very ableist way of thinking about gender and care and disability. So I think we have to get much more honest about the incredibly misogynistic and racist structures of care that we have in this country, all of which are predicated on an ableist fantasy that like, this is going to happen to someone else's kid. And I, magical me, am going to be 29 forever and never need care and have no elders. Good luck with that, sweetie, is what I have to say about that. Number one, that's just not how being a human works. And we have to have a real real talk about who's doing care and under what circumstances. Because we're all going to need care. We're all going to be disabled if we live so long. One in four people have a disability worldwide. 0.5% approximately are born with a disability. By the time you reach age 60, it becomes more like 55%. So care and disability are woven into the human experience. 
And we can integrate that into our understanding of parenting, gender, race, care, the whole ball of wax or not. But if we don't, we fuel an ableist paradigm where it is tragic to have a disabled child and it delineates you, it cuts you off from the norms of parenting. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm glad you talked about care. That was one of my questions. And that was actually a big part of the book. You write a lot about care. And that's something I had to deal with finding like a mother's helper. In fact, you know, that kind of support. I had the privilege of being able to work from home and have these kinds of options. And so it isn't something that I personally have thought a lot about. But the way that you address it was fascinating to me. And it is so 
tied together with the experience of raising a disabled person, a neurodivergent person, and what that journey is going to look like for our families. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it does look different for class privileged people than not, but not entirely. Right. So I, I think it is woven into sort of the ableism fueling a lot of our conversations around disability and our fear around disability and viewing it as a medical problem to be solved rather than an identity to be integrated. I didn't actually plan to write about care when I sat down to write this book is what's interesting, but I found there was that to write about disability lineage and why we disavow it meant writing about care and caretakers, caregivers are part of the story. The second piece of this is once you start being out about your family's disability and disability lineage, especially, the stories come out of the woodwork, right? So I always knew about my, I call him cousin XY because I never knew his name and the state gave him his father's name as part of their delineation from the family. He's not even listed in the records with his own name. So I call him cousin XY because all I knew about him was that he was a boy and in my and, uh, the family of a geneticist chromosomes matter and his extra chromosome really mattered. So I connected in, in 2017 with some distant relatives in Scotland who I had met growing up and found out that there was another cousin who I didn't even know existed, even though I knew everyone else in this family who had Down syndrome. And her name was Rona. She's passed away. But her story becomes sort of a, a mirror parallel to Cousin XY's story because she was fully integrated into her family until she became ill. And my cousins, second cousins and aunts and uncles created a care institution that was very cutting edge and progressive for Jewish people so that she could live a Jewish life because there's no separation of church and state at the time in Scotland. She had this whole life that I knew nothing about that my grandfather did know about, right? So I uncover this other whole story of our disability lineage that I didn't even know about that if I hadn't been searching for and willing to talk about with these extended family members, I never would have known. I go to Cosgrove and I enter, which is the care facility that my family helped start where she, where Rona lived. I find out that she didn't die there. She died in a hospital because the care facility wasn't prepared to take care of people with Down syndrome with serious illnesses. So there was sort of a somewhat tragic ending that I didn't know about that my family members didn't tell me about that I found out from who the caregiver who worked with her. And I also found out that it was really only the women in the family who were involved. The men wanted nothing to do with this. And the women really dedicated their whole lives. So you learn a lot from the caregivers. They're part of the story right? You can't tell the story of disability and family lineage without it. And this lineage is complex, right? It's not happy stories always. Some of them are about institutionalization, you know, murder in some cases, right? But there, I also have a sense of who Rona was now, of her personality and character. And I talk about reclaiming her for my daughter 
looking at pictures of her and seeing my daughter in her. I also talk about there's sort of two facets to this process of reclaiming your disability lineage and relineating. One is this kind of literal, like finding the people who've been excised from the story in like, who is that person in a photo album or who is that uncle who's referred to, but somehow disappears, right? They're all findable is what I found. <laughs> there are records out there. There are people willing to talk about it, right? Then there's claiming disability in a more nuanced way that maybe hasn't been named in your family. And I talk about my grandma, Dina, who was this fabulous socialist, folk dancing, you know, Adele Davis, health food nut before anyone else was, who never worked outside the house, never wrote a check in her life, adored me, and was deaf. And we did not talk about it and how it really shaped her life. And she had no positive identity as deaf. She wouldn't wear hearing aids. She was ashamed and embarrassed about it. She had no identity. She didn't sign. She didn't lip read. She had no identity as a deaf person, no positive community, et cetera, et cetera. My mom, and she wants me to always say she didn't really become deaf until her 60s, but she was hard of hearing. And she really embraced the overcoming narrative. She got a PhD from Harvard after raising two children and being a special ed teacher. She's published a million books. She's one of, she's like the world's best listener, right? Because of her hearing impairment, pays extra attention. She wears the latest and greatest hearing aids. But again, we couldn't really talk about this as disability in the family. So only at the end of the book do I realize, wow, right in, you know, across the table from me are sitting disabled people right, who it's been verboten to name and claim as such. So that's part of the journey that I went on and that I encourage others. You know, the point really isn't, you know, my particular messed up great family, but for everybody to find and claim their disability lineage. And I would love to know, how would you define the cost of not doing that? I mean, I'm sure that you having that knowledge back when your daughter was young would have made a difference in how you navigated that. And so what are we as families raising neurodivergent disabled kids? What are we losing out on by not understanding our family history? Yeah, I think that's such a crucial question. We're missing a positive sense of identity and connectedness. We're missing a sense of normalization. This is a normal part of family life that's happened before, right? We're missing a sense that this is part of family life as opposed to this exception, deviance almost. And I think in practical terms, it makes it harder for us to find our people, our kin, when we don't claim this in our families of origin, it actually keeps us from finding our community beyond the family. What we don't value in our family, we don't then look for in kinship, in the community. Those two things are often opposed by disability justice folks and queer folks say, you know, like, Oh, my family of origin sucks and they don't understand me and there's nobody like me in my family of origin, but I'm going to have this chosen family that's going to be amazing. And then the chosen family has all the flaws of the family, you know, because they're just people too. They don't have the same deep links as the family of origin. And they're things you get for, that you're entitled to. And I say this over and over. 
I think every human is entitled to a family of origin and an identity in that family. So I think that's something every human wants and needs. And I don't think we can have healthy, full, extended family, non-biological kinship relations without it, actually. I think those two things are connected. You have a chapter in here called Disappearing in Public. You wrote that children are trained to be ableist by their parents in relation to the gaze of an imagined public. They fear not only the hated, abandoned, disabled other, but more disturbingly that they too will be hated and abandoned even by their own families should they be disabled. And I read that. It just kind of hit me just thinking about how young this starts and how ableism is really the water that our kids are swimming in. I'm just wondering if you can unpack that a bit, the way that disabled people are perceived in public spaces. Yeah, yeah. I started thinking about this because I was remembering how when I was little, when I was about nine, I got pneumonia. And I remember wondering if, you know, and I lost a lot of weight, I didn't look good. And I remember wondering if my parents would need to give me away too, like my cousin, right? So the messages we give our children about disability, whether or not we have a disabled child, are that it's conditional love, you know, you're loved and valued because you're not disabled. So every ableist thing we do communicates that when we say, oh, that poor kid, you know, you should be nice to Johnny because he's disabled. He's in a wheelchair. He's confined to a wheelchair, not he's a wheelchair user, you know, even some well-intentioned statements like that, where we think we're teaching compassion or are telling our kids that, you know, disabled people have less value than non-disabled people, that they're to be pitied at best. It's an exceptional act to include them rather than the norm. Right. So we're giving these messages all the time, whether we have disabled children or not, that there's a hierarchy and we value some body minds more than others. So I I think we have to really think about (laughs) about that, even in our charity and compassion. And some of those paradigms are deeply ableist, too, and can reconfigure things. So disability is a normal part of being a human. And that's where we as parents of disabled children can really be leaders. I think that's where our communities led by disabled people are important. I think if you're a parent of a disabled child, find adults, find find community with your child, with other families that have that disability or similar disabilities. Not a single clinician. I went to the best of the best doctors, you know, developmental pediatricians, neurologists, you name it, OT, PT, all the T's, right? Nobody said find community for yourself, your family, and your child. Nobody said that. It was all, you need to get it together to fight for your child. I was like, what am I fighting here? <laughs> you know, so I think that's key, right? And then also finding adults especially for neurodiverse kids who are successful in ordinary ways, right? Who aren't geniuses. There are no more geniuses in the neurodiverse world than there are, you know, I always say I am smart. I am not a genius. You're probably not a genius. Most of us aren't. And you don't have to be a genius to earn your right to life. Sorry. You know, 
that, that, that isn't a requirement for anybody. So I think finding average people living productive lives with the disability that your child has is crucial for a parent. We'll be right back after this quick break. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. I want to talk about the two appendices at the back of the book. So one of them is about claiming your disability lineage. Could you share some of the suggestions you have for readers on how to do that in their own world? Yeah, yeah. I, and that's really, to me, in some ways, those appendices are are the heart of the book. Like that's the most important part is what people will do with this, right? How can you use this stuff? I think the simplest thing is to start asking family members about family members, basically, who you suspect had a disability that either wasn't named as such or wasn't spoken. And don't get put off by, they may use very ableist language, like don't freak out about that. And even if they can't name it, you can. So just asking questions is important. And then public documents we live in this world where if it was p- printed and published anywhere at any time, it is findable on the internet. So I found so much stuff about my cousin that nobody had told me that in some places contradicted the family story, right? So I think finding those documents can be really eye-opening And assuming there is a paper trail, people don't just disappear. They don't. 
So I think that like, that's a myth. That's an ableist myth that they were somewhere else. We don't know where they weren't, they were somewhere specific and it's findable. So I think those records are really helpful in finding. And then even let's say worst case scenario, you know, you're, you're adopted, you're, you can't find anything about your birth family. Just imagining, even if you can't find hard concrete evidence, just imagining there were people like me or my child in my family line. I think that is powerful. Just making that myth of family, which is, oh, it's always part myth, right? It's a story we tell about ourselves and our families and how it came to be assuming there were people like us. I don't have evidence of any queer people in my family line. I I know they were there. So even when you can't find concrete evidence, imagining it, but you'd be surprised how much you can find. And then I think there's the complicated thing of, for example, addiction is a disability as defined by the American Disabilities Act. The social definition of addiction is not a disability. But if you include addicted people in your disability lineage, you'd be surprised how much it grows, right? That is technically, by the most conservative legal definition, a disability. But we as a society, this is sort of the social construction piece, have decided it's not all failure, right? So I think that's the other thing is, is looking at disability both in a broader way redefining it, claiming it, and also that this is part of, you know, in some way, instead of saying this just, you know, reifies this binary between disabled and non-disabled people saying, this is also about valuing all body minds in all their diversity. And it's changed. I don't identify as a person with a disability at this moment. I could tomorrow. (laughs) Things can change a lot. In 24 hours, right? The truck could hit me and or whatever. I could have a seizure. Anything could happen. And if I live long enough, it will. But for now, it is not useful for me to define myself as a person with a disability. However, this reclamation has changed how I think about my own body mind and how I show up. For example, I told you I have COVID right now. No shame in my game. I have COVID right now and I might need to stop and drink. Before I thought about disability and claim my disability lineage, I would have felt that I had to, you know, that it was like unprofessional to share that. And now I bring my body mind at this moment to any conversation I'm in. Great. Before we go, I do want to talk about the other appendix, which is recipes for a revolution. Similarly, I got to those like, I love when people kind of break it down and tell me like, these are the things to do, because it really feels like a manifesto in that way. And I love that. That recipes for revolution is about reimagining care and community. Could you just take a few minutes to talk about how making the care system more equitable would involve seeing disability as this collective experience rather than this is just something your family has to deal with? Yes. So I think the first part is finding community and seeing disability as being part of a community as opposed to an individual problem to solve, right, as a collective identity which is very antithetical in some ways to, you know, our American up by the bootstraps ethos, but it's part of how we got into this mess. So, so that's the first piece. And I think 
transforming. So there are organizations out there for just about every disability, including for families. Some of them have already done this, but really transform using disability justice principles to transform them from sort of cure slash advocacy to really transforming and making more equitable care, right, treatment, all that stuff, really, and centering disabled people themselves in it. Sometimes that means me stepping back as a parent, and I do do list some of them, but when, you know, I went to a parenting support group that was really mostly parents venting and connecting in this strange way. And it was all women. There were like no dads there. It was parents. But it, so I think, you know, equal participation by all parents is important to not see, to, to expose the gendered apparatus in this. And then in turning those organizations into disability justice organizations that will look at this collectively and demand access, expanding what you mean by access, using some of Mia Mingus's ideas about access intimacy instead of like, I'm begging you please to make this accessible, centering disabled people's experience in accessibility conversations. And this is the complicated, tricky part that I'm sure you're navigating that all parents, I think, are navigating is we want full integration and participation of our disabled children and all disabled people. Absolutely. But on what terms do they enter? And at the same time, there's a need for separate community both those things at once. That's where you get the revolution. And insisting that disability be a part of every conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as a university professor, I work on it, you know, on that front, but whatever organizations at your job, your church or synagogue or mosque or whatever communities you're already a part of that may have nothing to do with disability on the surface, insisting that as we as a culture begin to engage diversity in a meaningful way, that disability and diversity of body minds is a part of every single conversation. I may have some others that I'm not remembering, but those are sort of the central pieces of it. I think they're, they're pieces like normalizing diverse developmental narratives, right? That Everybody doesn't leave home. Everybody doesn't live independently. And that doesn't mean you're a failure as a parent. That doesn't mean your kid's a failure, right? Normalizing and making that visible. Being out about your disability, about your family's disability. I think that's really important. And I think just encouraging disability identity. So many parents said to me, including, these are you know my peers at the university. These are highly educated people who would join every anti-racist, anti-sexist group in the world would say things to me like, well, you know, you don't want to talk to that person because it's like a club they'll bring you into. Or my kid, you know, was diagnosed with this, but we don't talk about it because, you know, we're triumphing over it. There was a lot of ableist pressure from parents on their kids still today to disidentify with this as an identity. That's somehow that precludes excellence, that precludes success, that precludes 
individuality, right? And that is ableist and so harmful to children. And I teach these kids when they come to university and they say, all my life, I've been told to suppress, hide my speech impediment and shamed for it. And, you know, this is claiming this as part of my identity is the most empowering thing that's ever happened to me. You know, I hear these stories from kids who were successful enough, quote unquote, to get into Georgetown, right? Telling me that the single most harmful thing that has ever happened to them in their life is not having their disability, but their families encouraging them to isolate, to suppress it, to deny it. So I think we want to stop that and encourage our family members to to name and claim with pride their disability. And we can only do that fully if we claim our disability lineage. And we leave that for the next generation. I talk a lot about the, the, the two directions. That's how we create a, a legacy for our future disabled kin. Wonderful. That's such a great note to end this conversation on. I just want to remind listeners, the book is All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. Is there a place where you prefer listeners to check you out, whether it's your website or social media or both? Yeah, both are fine. I'm Jennifer Natalia Yup is my handle for Instagram. I'm not on Twitter, but that's probably the best place to contact me. And you can find the book pretty much everywhere. A disabled autistic person designed the cover. A disabled person is narrating the audiobook. It is available in audiobook. And it's available from Penguin Random House. It's available on Amazon. It's available at all the places. And I love hearing from readers and talking to parents. I'm very happy to talk to synagogues churches, parenting groups, in some way, you know, I want everyone to read the book, but most of all, parents with disabled kids. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for everything you shared today and for putting this work out into the world. I think it's really important conversation and I just am grateful for that. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. I so appreciate your podcast and so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about all our families. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. 
Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.